Uh, Genesis chapter 29, but we'll pick it up in in chapter 28, verse uh, 20. And Jacob vowed a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then shall the Lord be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the tenth unto thee. Chapter 29. Then Jacob went on his journey and came into the land of the people of the east. And he looked, and behold, a well in the field. And lo, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it. For out of that well they watered the flocks, and a great stone was upon the well's mouth. And thither were all the flocks gathered, and they rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the sheep, and put the stone again upon the well's mouth in his place. And Jacob said unto them, My brethren, whence be ye? And they said, Of Haran are we. And he said unto them, Know ye Laban the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And he said unto them, Is he well? And they said, He is well. And behold, Rachel his daughter cometh with the sheep. And he said, Lo, it is yet high day, neither is it time that the cattle should be gathered together. Water ye the sheep, and go and feed them. And they said, We cannot until all the flocks be gathered together, until they roll the stone from the well's mouth, then we water the sheep. And while he yet spake with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she kept them. And it came to pass, when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. And Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's brother and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. And it came to pass, when Laban heard the tidings of Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him, and embrace him, and kissed him, and brought him to his house. And he told Laban all these things. And Laban said unto him, Surely thou art my bone and my flesh. And he abode with him the space of a month. And Laban said unto Jacob, Because thou art my brother, shouldest thou therefore serve me for naught? Tell me, what shall thy wages be? And Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah was tender-eyed, but Rachel was beautiful and well-favored. And Jacob loved Rachel and said, I will serve thee seven years for Rachel, thy younger daughter. And Laban said, It is better that I give her to thee than that I should give her to another man. Abide with me. And Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed unto him but a few days, for the love he had to her. And Jacob said unto Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled, that I may go in unto her. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place, and made a feast. And it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to him, and he went in unto her. And Laban gave unto his daughter Leah Zilpah, his maid for a handmaid. And it came to pass that in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And he said unto Laban, What is this thou hast done unto me? Did I not serve with thee for Rachel? Wherefore then hast thou beguiled me? And Laban said, It must not be so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. 
fulfill her week, and we will give thee this also for the service which thou shalt serve with me yet seven other years. And Jacob did so and fulfilled her week, and he gave him Rachel his daughter to wife also. And Laban gave to Rachel his daughter Bilhah his handmaid to be her maid. And he went in also unto Rachel, and he loved also Rachel more than Leah, and served with him yet seven other years. And thus is the reading of God's word, and all his people say, Amen. Amen. Um, well, um, last week, as you know, I didn't record, or I tried to record, but it didn't come out, the uh, previous sermon about tithing. So for those listening online, if you're wondering why there's a gap in our studies, that is why I was not able to record it. So we're going to pick it up this week in chapter 29 of Genesis, and this is by way of application here. We're not going to, there's nothing deep and mysterious about the presence of Christ here, but we will get to that later, Lord willing. But now this is just some basic um, appreciation of uh, what mistakes people make in their Christian walk and what a mess they make of their life. And so the title of today's sermon, an association with that, which gives the whole thing away, the title is, Jacob Prays Not. Jacob Prays Not. So with that in mind, let's jump right into it here. And we can appreciate how this starts with him making a vow, which is essentially, by golly, if I get all the way around this big lap that I'm going to go through, and if I get back, then only God could have made me do it. And so that's a good way to start. But then there seems to be an estrangement between he and the Lord from that point um, forward, at least for quite a number of years. But uh, we should appreciate from what we learned in the uh, couple of previous studies that God has always been with Jacob since before he was born. We read that before the two were born that he said, Jacob I loved and Esau have I hated. So God has always uh, known and loved Jacob from the foundation of the world. He is one of his elect. So with that in mind, um, we can appreciate how that applies in our own lives because there was a point in our lives where God did awaken us to his presence and we became believers. People will use the term, uh, when did you get saved in a, in a sloppy sort of way. I'd like to ask the question, when did you become a believer? In other words, when did God open your eyes and you began to appreciate uh, Christ and what things he had done on your behalf? When did you begin to appreciate that you were a sinner and in need of a savior? So I like to use the term, when did you become a believer? So here we are in uh, chapter 29, and we can appreciate that Jacob leaves um, this area. He leaves, um, says he goes out from Beersheba and went towards Haran. He leaves with almost nothing. He's going with basically the shirt on his back, and we only know about two things that he has with him. We know that he has oil because in verse 18 of 28 that he anoints the pillar with it. Uh, we also know, but we don't know this until chapter 32, verse 10, that he also has a staff with him. We don't hear mention of that staff until chapter 32, and I think we should appreciate why. There's some significance to that. So back in 28, we saw that Jacob was a type of Christ. We can appreciate that in a big picture sense because just as Christ left glory, stepped out of his glory and came down to this sinful world and found his bride and then takes her back to glory, so too does Jacob leave the promised land and goes into the land of the east um, to get a wife, which he then brings back to the promised land. So in verse 1 of 29, we read that Jacob lifted up his feet and went to the land of a people of the east. That's the direction he's going to take himself a wife. Now, we can appreciate that they're sinners because where was it that Adam and Eve were expelled to when they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden? Why, they went to the east. And God placed a cherubim with flaming sword on the east side of the garden to keep him from coming 
back. So again, big picture here, um, Jacob's going to go find himself a wife, bring her back to the uh, promised land. Now, I find that when I read the Bible that I eisegete, meaning I put my own thinking into it at times, and I have it in my head that Jacob is a young man. But if you do the math, and it's not easy to do, you're going to find out that Jacob is 77 years old here when he's going to seek a wife. He is not a young man. So Esau is very rightly angry with him for what he had done because we're not dealing with a, a foolish childhood prank that he did when he went in and took Esau's blessing. He was a 77 or 76-year-old man when that took place. So he's not a child. He's quite a, a mature man when he goes forth to seek a wife for himself. Now, between verse 1 and verse 2, there is no narrative of a 400-mile walk. All we know about it is that he uh, had a vision with the Lord standing up upon uh, top of a ladder and the angels of the Lord um, ascending and descending from that, on that ladder. No comment about what happened on that 400-mile walk. Um, but we do have some interesting details when we read the Scripture, and at least eight times during this section 28 and 29, we learn that Laban is his mother's brother. That's an interesting detail. Three times in verse 10 alone. I'll read that. And it came to pass when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Now that's certainly an interesting detail that maybe God is putting that in front of us here because this may be something we should think about. Now, unfortunately, Jacob did not have a Bible, so he couldn't sit down there and ponder over the words written in Scripture and ask himself, I wonder why God has told me that three times in one verse, that Laban is my mother's brother. Maybe that's something I should think about. Now, I think we can appreciate that Jacob undoubtedly was led by the Lord on that 400-mile journey, and he got there safely. There are several scriptures which would help us to appreciate how we should conduct ourselves on a journey like that before we take it, while we're taking it, and after we've made the journey. In Psalm 119, 105, it says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Well, this doesn't really apply to Jacob in the sense that, first of all, he doesn't have the word of God to read, which we do, and we would read the word of God to appreciate um, what path we should take. What is the Lord's will in general and what is it for our life? And you won't know either one if you don't read his word and have a relationship with the Lord. So he doesn't have the benefit of that. But we know in a broader context that Jesus Christ himself is the word of God and he will direct our steps. Psalm 37.5 says, Commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. And so Jacob kind of starts here with that vow, like I said, in verse 20 and 21, where he is committing himself to the Lord. And he says, you know, if I get all the way around the lap here, why it was the Lord that made me do it, he will be the one that shall bring it to pass. But I would ask this question, I wonder if the Lord brought it to pass the way Jacob thought it was going to come to pass. I have that question about myself all the time. I mean, I know I'm going to get to glory, but am I going to get there without being dragged through the keyhole, as one of our brothers is fond of saying? And that can be painful. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, is the verse that, uh, 5 and 6 are verses that we all know. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Not just part of it, but trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. 
Not your understanding. Though you don't lean on your own understanding. You lean on the Word of God. You trust in the Lord. You read His Word and you pray. So you don't lean on your own understanding because God's ways are high above. They're far beyond our ways. They're far beyond our comprehension. We do not know all the things that He's working in the, um, in the background to bring things to come to pass or in order that He would give, uh, receive glory. Verse 6, In all thy ways acknowledge Him, and he shall direct thy paths. And all thy ways acknowledge him. Acknowledge him. I wonder if Jacob did that. I wonder if Jacob acknowledged God in any of his ways. So here we are, 400 miles later in verse 2, and we read that Jacob has arrived at the well. Not, not any well, but the well. The well that's outside the city where his father-in-law, uh, future father-in-law, would uh, does dwell. And so I, in my notes here, I put deja vu. Isn't this working out great? Isn't it just like his father and his mother's story? Genesis 24:11. I want us to recall that his father's servant came to the well of water at the time of the evening, quote, even the time that women go out to draw water. So the father's servant arrived um, fortuitously directed by God right at the time when the women go out to draw the well. And who should come out but Rebecca? And Scripture says that she was very fair to look upon. So out comes Rebecca. He doesn't know who she is. He just sees that this is a woman that is very fair to look upon, and we know the rest is history. Our deacon read for us that section of Scripture this morning. Now, this is a story that Jacob, no doubt, has been playing in his head for a 400-mile walk. Um, with the exception of he's going to get the bride himself, uh, a servant is not going to procure one for him. So there is a little difference here, and we know that the servant represented the Holy Ghost, and that's certainly how it applies in this world. The Holy Ghost goes out into this world and finds a bride for Christ. But that's not quite what's happening here. Jacob's going by himself. So here he is. He's at the well, and he's thinking, is God not good? Is God not faithful? Um, well, that is true, but the question he needs to ask himself is whether or not he is in the way. Back in Genesis 24, 27, um, we read, this is what the servant says, Blessed be the Lord God of, our, of my master Abraham, who hath not left destitute my master of his mercy and his truth, I being in the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. So the servant acknowledges God in all of this and that he was in the way. So we ask ourselves, I wonder if Jacob's been in the way all the way he's got there. So here we are in 29, and the first, I'll read verses 4 and 6. We see, And Jacob said unto them, My brethren, whence be ye? And they said, Of Haran are we. Well, isn't this wonderful? There he is at the right well. And he said unto them, Know ye Laban the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And he said unto them, Is he well? And they said, He is well. And behold, Rachel, his daughter, cometh with the sheep. It couldn't be any better than that. Rachel's coming out here. Um, but he does have a question here. It's not quite the time of day that they ought to be watering the sheep. It's only high noon. It's about noontime, as opposed to when they ought to be watering them in the evening, and then they would put them in the uh, sheepfold. So things are a little bit out of order here, but that's okay. We don't really care. In verse 11, we read that Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. God apparently 
has answered his prayers. Not only has he answered them in that he's led her to the daughter of Nahor, but look at verse 17. It says, Leah was tender-eyed, but Rachel was beautiful and well-favored. Those are two different adjectives, which we'll get into later. His mother was fair to look upon, but Rachel is beautiful and well-favored. So Jacob has come to take a wife from his mother's kindred. This is the one. In verse 14, it says that he abode with Laban the space of a month. And verse 18, and Jacob loved Rachel. Again, verse 17, she's beautiful and well-favored. It seems like we're off to a very good start here, just like it went for his parents. Well, let's go look at Genesis 24. We'll look at verses 11 through 14. Let's see, is it really going that way? Verse 11 of Genesis 24. This is the servant. And he made his camels to kneel down without the city by a well of water at the time of the evening, even the time that women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, I pray thee, send me good speed this day and show kindness unto my master Abraham. Behold, I stand here by the well of water and the daughters of men of the city come out to draw water. And let it come to pass that the damsel to whom I shall say, let down thy pitcher, I pray thee, that I may drink, and she shall say, drink, and I will give thy camels drink also. Let the same be she that thou hast appointed for thy servant Isaac, and thereby shall I know that thou hast showed kindness unto my master. So what does the servant do when he gets at the well? He stops. He stops. And he asks God to reveal to him who God has appointed. And God does that very thing. Then, after he's worked all that out, then we learn of the woman's identity and her family. Every step of the way, this servant acknowledges God. In verse 21 of Genesis 24, he says, And the man wondered at her, held his peace, to wit whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. Verses 26 and 27. And the man bowed down his head and worshipped the Lord. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who hath not left destitute my master of his mercy and his truth. I being in the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. Over in verse 35, And the Lord hath blessed my master greatly, and he has become great, and hath given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and men servants and maidservants and camels and asses. Everything my master has has come from the Lord, has come from God. Down in verse 40, And he said unto them, The Lord before whom I walk will send his angel with thee and prosper thy way, and thou shalt take a wife for my son of my kindred and my father's house. Down in verse 42, And I came this day unto the will and said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, if now thou do prosper my way which I go. Verse 44, And she say to me, Both drink thou, and I will also draw for thy camels. Let the same be the woman whom the Lord hath appointed for my master's son. Verse 48, and I bowed down my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord God of my master Abraham, which hath led me in the right way to take my master's brother's daughter 
unto his son. And then in verse 52, And it came to pass, when Abraham's servant heard their words, he worshipped the Lord, bowing himself to the earth. Every step of the way, the servant here is acknowledging God as the one who has led him and has prospered him on his journey, plus prospered his master who is back at home. He's accounting everything to God here. And I want you to appreciate when he's doing this here, he's not talking to Christians when he's doing it. So I want you to appreciate the evangelical nature of his conversation in that he's giving God glory for everything that takes place here. He is witnessing to these people here, just as we all should when we're talking about our lives to other people. That's what witness is, is you're sharing what God has done for you, and he's indeed doing that in a very direct way. This is what God has done for me. This is what God has done for my master. Years ago, we used to get a, a Christmas card from a certain Christian woman whom we still are good friends with, but we were not Christians at the time, and her Christmas cards were full of language like this, which I confess to you irritated us no end at the time. But now, I look at it and I go, she was glorifying God every step of the way, very much like I should do. So now it's a conviction to me of the way we should communicate the Lord's blessings in our lives every step of the way. So here's a, this leads to a question here back in Genesis 29. Has Jacob, as of yet, asked God to forgive him what he did to Esau? Again, he's 77 years old here. This is, what he did was not like a a rebellious adolescent, you know, he was an old man here when he did that. He had to have known all what the consequences were going to be. Um, the answer is no, he hasn't done that. Has Jacob acknowledged God as the one who brought him safely to Haran? He has come 400 miles, and I'll bet he had to lean on that staff during that walk, but he hasn't acknowledged it uh, that God got him safely there. As I said to you before, the first mention of the staff is in Genesis chapter 32, verse 10, where we read, he's saying, I'm not worthy of the least of these mercies of all the truth and of all the truth which thou hast showed unto my servant. For with my staff I passed over this Jordan, and now I am become two bands. So there's an awakening in Jacob that's starting to grow in him because he's acknowledging that, you know, I basically came over here with a shirt on my back, and now I'm going home with very large flocks. So. We could take Psalm 23 and lay that right over Jacob's um, life in terms of what things God has done for Jacob and what things God will do for Jacob. And this applies to every Christian. But I'm going to read Psalm 23 here and uh, apply a few comments here with respect to Jacob. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Jacob never missed a meal as far as I can tell. He never went hungry. He got back home. He was safe. Uh, wouldn't lean. The scripture doesn't talk about that. So he didn't want or lack really of anything. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. In this context here, Jacob is like one of the sheep. All we like sheep have gone astray, as Isaiah 53 says. The sheep represent Christians. And God has taken him and led him and fed him in peaceful pastures every step of the way. And I'm going to qualify that about peaceful pastures because Jacob has created a great deal of trouble for himself. Nevertheless, God kept him safe. So the Bible word here is green pastures. They were, um, as a matter of fact, where Jacob um, fed his sheep, all his sheep prospered and his flocks grew with great bounty. Verse 3, he restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Jacob has gotten himself in quite a bit of trouble 
but it is the Lord who's going to lead him through all this trouble and bring him back to his father's house in peace. But as I said, there's a lot of trouble in between the two of them, which I'll mention briefly in a minute. Verse 4, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and he's fixing to walk through it as he's coming up on Jacob where the staff is brought up before us because he's very much afraid Jacob, uh, Esau is going to kill him. So he's walking through the valley of the shadow of death. In a big picture, this earth, our entire walk of life, is in the valley of the shadow of death because everything you should see as a Christian, you should see in a temporal sense. God's going to burn this whole place up. He's going to destroy it. Everything you see is going to die at some point. So we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He says, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Well, he's not there yet, but he's going to get there because God has always been with him, and he's going to get to the point where he's going to stop being fearful. He says, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. I would say to you without developing this that the rod and the staff both represent Christ. So the idea that he came across Jordan with the staff, meaning he came across the Jordan with Christ. Verse 5, thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. God did that literally to Jacob when he went down into Egypt, which represents the world, and the world is at enmity with all of the saints. And what did he do down there? He fed him. He gave him the best land of Goshen, and he was literally fed while he was in the presence of his enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That is true of all saints, but with respect to Jacob, he's going to go back to his father's house in peace. He's going to be buried in his father's tomb, indicative of being gathered up to the people of the Lord. So Psalm 23 applies very much to the life of Jacob. Now, let me pick up where I left off. Okay, that's where I, okay, I got through that where I went. Christ has ever been with Jacob, even though he doesn't appreciate it. So back to the Genesis 28 and that wonderful vow he made. Yes, Christ is with him every step of the way and watching over him. Now, upon arrival, did Jacob ask God to reveal to him the one whom God had appointed? Did he do that? Did he do like the servant did, who stopped, set up some conditions, asked God to appoint, to reveal to me the woman whom God has appointed? Did Jacob do that, or did Jacob lean on his own understanding? And relying on his own understanding, walking in the flesh instead of in the spirit, how did he identify the woman? He asked the people at the well, he's asking the flesh, to point out who Rachel is. That's how we learned who Rachel was. It came from the people at the well there. He did not ask Christ, who is the staff that he's had with him. Proverbs 3, verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. He's leaning on his own understanding. Of course this is my wife. This is just like mom and dad. I mean, she's very fair to look upon. That's what my mom was. Um, Rachel is beautiful and well-favored. Verse 6, in all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy path. I can't find anywhere in the narrative where Jacob acknowledged God for anything, at least not yet. In verse 14, we read that it is a month of days in Laban's house, and there's no mention of his Aaron yet. Why are you here? <laughs> Psalm 37, 5 says, commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. Well, it's a big picture statement here. It's going to come to pass, but not maybe in the way that you think it's going to come to pass. Like Jacob, 
all of us will get to glory if Christ be in you. But as I have said many times, there's a whole lot of trouble between here and there, particularly if you do not seek God's counsel every step of the way. Irrespective of that, big picture here, he will bring it to pass because God is sovereign. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5 says, We are kept, we are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You're kept by God. He's going to get you to glory. Um, but you might smart for it if you do not stay in the way. And the only way you can stay in the way is if you pray to the Lord and ask Him to reveal His will. You stay in the Bible that it would be a lamp unto your feet. And so your steps can be directed in a, in a more meaningful way than you would appreciate being estranged from God, walking in sin. So we see here in verse 20 that Jacob has eyes only for Rachel. In verse 21, he says that it is my wife. He's worked for her. Now give me my wife. Now, I want to talk about beautiful and well-favored. If you um, look in the Hebrew and the uh, interlinear, it is fair of form and fair of appearance. And every man knows what that means. She's got a good figure and she's very pretty woman here. So I'm suggesting to you that he's walking in the flesh and not in the spirit, and he's got eyes for a very attractive woman. So, living there a month of days in Laban's house, and he's been working out a way to make Rachel his wife. Now, there's a principle in view here that comes from, let's see here, it's 1 Samuel. Chapter 16, this is the occasion when God has asked Samuel to go anoint the king of Israel. This king is going to replace Saul. When God picked out the first king for Israel, Saul, he picked a man that everybody could rally around. He was a tall man, he was a handsome man, he was a head above everybody else's shoulders. But that didn't work out the way the people thought it would work out. And God rejected Saul, and he was going to have... Um, Samuel pick out another person to be king. So in verse 6 of 1 Samuel 16, we have this principle set before us here. Samuel's looking at all the boys, and, he's, and the Lord says unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance. I'll pick it up in verse 6. I'm sorry, like I said. And it came to pass, when they were come, he's called the brothers, all the sons uh, together, and that he looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. Verse 7, But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance, or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeketh not as man seeth, the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. So Samuel here is fixing to make the same mistake that um, Jacob is going to make because he's looking on the outward appearance. And God says, no, 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 I look on the heart. Don't, don't look on the outward. You need to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. If you fail to do it, if you fail to seek God's counsel every step of the way, you're going to smart for it. Now, Galatians 5.16, another principle here I've mentioned several times, sort of walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Jacob has eyes only for Rachel. She is beautiful and well-favored. So there he is, a month of days, trying to figure out how to make her his wife. Leah, it says, 
She's tender-eyed, which means she's weak of stature and she's not particularly attractive. She probably has no form or comeliness or beauty that any might desire her. I'm obviously alluding to Isaiah 53, 2, where it speaks of the Lord. There was nothing that would be attractive in the Lord when he was manifest in flesh. Nothing particularly attractive about Leah, so he's got his eyes on Rachel. Now, you make your plans, but God has his plans, and so maybe Rachel is not the one. So before he kissed that girl, maybe Jacob should have asked if she had a sister. Now, this drama is going to play itself out in a very interesting way. The first work of the Holy Spirit is to convict a man of his sin. Sometimes the Lord does that gently, and sometimes he doesn't do it gently. Sometimes it's very public, and it's a pie-in-the-face experience and can be kind of humiliating. I really don't like that. I'd much rather I get on my knees, repent, and have the Lord open up my heart to my sins in a very private and secret way. Principle here, the Lord does say, love doth cover a multitude of sins. And believe me, he has covered a multitude of my sins that nobody will ever know about. And I'm thankful for that. But there are times when your sins are, can be public, and the Lord can do that. So while Jacob is making his plans about who he's going to wed, Laban, his mother's brother, is making his plans. Remember that word came up three times in verse 10, his mother's brother? What did Laban's sister, Rebekah, do to secure Jacob, his father's blessing? What happened back, back home before he left in Jacob's household? She passed him off as somebody else with his consent. He was party to the deception. Now, what does Laban, his mother's brother, do? I wonder if those two were raised in the same house. They were. I wonder if they think alike. I wonder if they come from similar dysfunctionalities. We all do. Our siblings, we all come from the same house. And when you think about what God has done to have mercy on you, he's pulled you out of a mess and he's set you up on high. But you, do, you still carry some baggage with you. We still are in the flesh until such time as the flesh goes to the grave. We know that sin resides in the flesh. It lives in the flesh. So what does Laban, Rebekah's brother, do to unite tender-eyed Leah with Jacob? It's tradition in the Mideast, or used to be, that the elder would always go before the younger. So he's got to... He's got to unload his older daughter before he can get rid of the gorgeous younger daughter. So what does he do with Leah? He passes her off as someone else with her consent. She was party to it. She held her peace all night long when the marriage was consummated. And so when Jacob woke up in the morning, he um, was surprised, to say the least. So the elder goes first in the Mideast, but that's not what happened over at Jacob's house. The mother put the younger before the elder. And so their conversation here in Genesis 29, Laban's really taking the higher ground. Oh, we don't, that's not what happens here. Uh, you might have told me that you got the blessing of your father, but you're the younger. But what happens here is the elder goes before the younger. So you would think, as this drama played itself out, that Jacob would have been driven to his knees in repentance, but he's not. He has reaped exactly what he sowed. Laban and Leah did to Jacob exactly what Rebekah, his mother, and he did to Esau. Now, 
just going to take a little side journey here. My suspicion is that Jacob might have had a little bit too much wine to drink the night before his bride was presented to him. Now, it says in verse 22 of 29 that a feast was held. Um, and Laban gathered all the men of that place and made a feast. The root word of that word feast is to drink. So it's not like they were sitting around and eating food for seven days, but they were drinking wine for seven days. And we can appreciate that it's a seven-day period. You can look up the occasion when Samson is going to be going to take a bride of the Philistines, and this is from Judges chapter 14. You'll find four different places in there where it specifically makes reference to a seven-day period of time. When you roll forward to the Gospel of John chapter 2, that's the first miracle recorded that the Lord did, and that's at the wedding of Cana. And you can find language in there. Verse 3, it says, And when they wanted wine, meaning they were lacking wine, that the mother of Jesus came to him and said, They have no wine. Then you drop down to verse 11, and um, actually verse 10, The governor calls the bridegroom, and he says unto them, Every man at the beginning, meaning the beginning of the feast, sets forth good wine, and then when men have well drunk, all throughout the seven days, then that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until nine. So this is a seven-day period of celebration and drinking. My suspicion is he drank a little bit too much. And we can appreciate why the Lord does say in Psalm 104, verse 15, that wine maketh the glad the heart of man. Wine maketh glad the heart of man. A little bit does, but um, you drink too much and you're going to have some trouble and that's spoken of in Proverbs here, um, 23. And I am going to read that because it's a good warning for everyone. Proverbs 23, verse, I'll pick it up in verse 24. Proverbs 23, that's too far to go. I'll, I meant to say verse 29, I'll pick it up in 29. Who hath woe, who hath sorrow, who hath contentions, who hath babbling, who hath wounds without cause, who hath red eyes. Verse 30, they that tarry long at the wine, they that go to seek mixed drink. You drink too much and you're going to have wounds because you're going to get yourself and you're going to say things you ought not to say. You're going to get yourself in squabbles. You might get yourself beat up a little bit. Your eyes are going to be bloodshot from too much wine. Uh, verse 31, look not thou upon the wine when it is red. You know, when you see those wine commercials, they pick up a glass and swirl it, and it looks very attractive. Um, certain relative of ours was an alcoholic, and he said when he would watch the um, football games, it was very difficult for him to resist the commercials that showed the wonderful bubbly amber drink, you know, in a cup. So it's, it's intended to be very appealing to the senses. And so he says, don't look upon it when it's red in the cup. Verse 32, at the last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. Thine eyes shall behold strange women, and thine heart shall utter perverse things. In other words, you're going to drink too much, and you're going to go home with a woman you do not know, and when you wake up, your eyes are going to behold strange women. That's exactly what Jacob did. He woke up in the morning and beheld a strange woman. Verse 34 and 35 speaks about a person being um, drunk where the world moves about them. You feel like you're in a ship. Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or as he that lieth upon the top of a mast. Whole world feels like it's moving and rocking around you. Verse 35, they have stricken me, shalt thou say, and I was not sick. 
They have beaten me. This guy's got a terrible hangover, and I felt it not. When shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. And they're drawn back to the drink. So I'm not suggesting that Jacob was an, uh, was an alcoholic, but I am suggesting that after seven days of drinking, he, wasn't the, he didn't have the clearest of mind when his, I'm going to put it in quotes, wife was presented to him. So when he woke in the morning, his eyes beheld Leah, a strange woman. So we can appreciate all through the scriptures, and here in particular, that what thou meant for evil, God meant for good. So all of these people are we're trying to work out their own agenda, but God means it for good because he's going to use it to build up the nation of Israel very quickly. Leah clearly is God's appointed one just as surely as Jacob was. She's tender-eyed, which means she's weak um, of countenance, weak of strength, and in principle, again, that's whom God uses to affect his will and his glory. He uses the weak things of the world. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25, we read, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now this, what follows, is not very flattering at all. For ye see how your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Now, this is kind of a broad statement that includes everybody here, just saying. Verse 27, But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. So God chooses the weak things, the foolish things of the world, the things that the world would reject and the things that the world esteems as base and beneath them, and he picks those people to go to glory and to affect his, his will in a demonstrative sense. And he does this in verse 29, he says, so that no flesh should glory in his presence. There's not going to be some theologian in, in glory going, you know, I got here because I figured it out. God's going to say, no, you didn't. I revealed it to you. You did not figure it out. And if that's what you think, um, hit the road. Um, so that's a bigger, that's a principle that takes place here. So we look at tender-eyed Leah, and we learn through the genealogy that she actually has seven children. She has six boys and she has one girl. Bilhah, her handmaid, has two boys, and that beautiful and well-favored Rachel, that, that gorgeous woman, she has but two sons, and she dies in childbirth, giving birth to the second one, which would be Benjamin. Her handmaid, Zilpah, has two boys. It is Leah that is buried with Jacob in the same place that Abraham and Sarah, the elect of God, are buried, in the same place that Isaac and Rebekah are buried. She is buried with Jacob. She is the one who gives birth to Judah, which gives birth eventually to Christ. So God is showing this as principle. He's chosen the tender-eyed Leah. She's the one who's going to produce um, a lot of children. Seven children out of 13 come from her. So Jacob, having been duped as he had duped others, is not yet convicted of his sin. And we can appreciate that God can use lots of means to uh, reveal your sin to you, 
But there's only one thing that will lead a man to repentance, and that's the goodness of God. Romans 2, 4 says, It is the goodness of God that leadeth thee to repentance. God has to open your heart up. And so Jacob's been hit with a pie in the face here, and the sin that's been um, committed against him is identical to the sin that he has committed against somebody else. And he's indignant about it, but nothing seems to be turning in his head about what he did to his brother. So he's still walking in the flesh, and he has eyes only for Rachel, and so he steps right into the snare that Laban has set before him. Genesis 29, verse 26, And Laban said, It must not be so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Fulfill her week, and we will give thee this also for the service which thou shalt serve with me yet seven other years. And Jacob did so and fulfilled her week, and he gave him Rachel his daughter to wife also. And Laban gave to Rachel his daughter Bilhah, his handmaid, to be her maid. And he went in also unto Rachel, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served with him yet seven other years. To appreciate the chronology of what's taking place here, is here's the way it worked out. He said, I'll work for your daughter for seven years. He works seven years. Uh, they have a seven-day feast, a week feast, and he's presented with Leah. He wakes up in the morning. He's pretty unhappy about things. He has a conversation with Laban, and Laban says, well, work seven years for the next daughter, and you can have her too. So they then have a seven-day feast, another one, and he receives Rachel at the end of seven days, and then he's going to work seven years after he receives her. And you're going to see some significance spiritually when we talk about this later. So for one woman, he works seven years first. He gets a woman, party for seven more days, and then he gets the next woman, and then, they, um, then he works seven years after he has already received her. And he is having, um, he's copulating with four women at the same time is what I'm trying to say. He's going to build up national Israel very quickly. And when you work all of this out, he's going from bed to bed to bed. It says the word also in verse 30 there, and he went in also unto Rachel and loved her. So he's, he's bouncing between beds. Um, now, as he has done this, so he served seven years for a wife, and he never sought the Lord's face, he never sought the Lord's counsel, is this the one? There's no confession of his sin before Esau, no acknowledgement of God's providence in his life. Is it any wonder his life is such a mess? In Genesis 49, 7, Jacob is brought before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh asks him what he does for a living, you know, how old are you, what have you been doing? And Jacob summarizes his life as this, few and evil have been the days of the years of my life been. Few and evil. That's how he summarizes it, because he has made a mess of his life, and that's the way your life goes if you reject God. I'm not saying that goes that way for everybody, but if you've had the gospel presented to you and you reject it, you are not going to make God into a liar. You're not going to prove God a liar. He will not be mocked. So your life is going to be difficult for you if you reject the gospel. The Bible sets forth basic principles, and Jacob ignored those basic principles that he'd received from his parents. It's like the kid that goes to church while he's sitting underneath the authority of his parents, and he misses the most important parts of the lessons. When his mother told him about how she became his father's wife, he missed the part about seeking God's counsel in it, giving God the glory for what had done, what God had done. And he suffers for it. He should have prayerfully sought a wife. And I'd say that to every Christian that's looking for a spouse. You need to prayerfully seek the Lord's counsel in it. I found my wife 
before I was a Christian, and so I can be, um, I can be held unaccountable for not seeking his counsel because I didn't have a relationship with God at the time. He picked a, the perfect wife for me, and by his grace, he brought us both into, into Christ. And so I'm very thankful for that. We were both blind, and yet he opened up both of our eyes that we might behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So Jacob's been sitting underneath biblical teaching, and he's been sleeping while important lessons are set before him. Now, respecting that lesson about Abraham and Hagar, remember Sarah gave Hagar to her husband? Well, I mean, he doesn't have the benefit of time to see what a mess the Middle East is, but um, that was a bad thing to do. His parents should not have done that. But he was obviously sound asleep while that was uh, drama was recounted to him. Now, Jacob and Leah, they are two peas in a pod. They have both committed the exact same sin. They are both sinners and in need of salvation. But Rachel becomes the third P in the pod, and Bilhah becomes the fourth P in the pod, and then when you throw in Zilpah, you've got now five P's in one pod. Every one of them are guilty of adultery, a basic principle set forth all the way back in Genesis chapter 2, where God says one man, one woman is one marriage. And so they are the radish bunts of people. I don't want to make fun of people that live in, I uh, won't do it. <laughs> they are a ratty bunch of people. Let's just leave it at that. And this is a definite downward trend in man. The mistake his grandfather made, he did just once. Jacob makes it time and time again. It's not like he goes into the handmaid's bed once. He's, he does it several times. We know that he has two children by each of the handmaids. So what his grandfather did was bad, but what he's doing is much worse. It is no wonder that this ratty group of people engage in activities which literally become an embarrassment to Jacob. When his sons Simon and Levi murder all of the people in Shechem by duping them into getting circumcised, he says of them, ye have troubled me to make me to stink among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. If the people had not, if Jacob and his family had not been protected by God, those people would have risen up and wiped them out overnight. But God protected Jacob from his sins and the sins of his people. It is no wonder, and think of how terrible a thing this was to do. Reuben was the firstborn of Leah. Right after Rachel dies, what does Reuben do? He goes and lies with um, Bilhah, which was Rachel's maidservant. That's an incredibly audacious thing to do against your father, is to go lie with his um, with his concubine, which was the servant given unto Rachel. There was an incredible amount of family tension and uh, sibling jealousy and rivalry, not only you know, amongst the women, but among the children as well. And that was one of the way it, you could see it manifested itself was when he went and lay with his father's concubine, the maidservant that was given to Rachel, his beloved wife, Leah's son, Reuben, does that. It's no wonder that at some point they... Um, are jealous against Joseph, which again is from Rachel, and they sell him into slavery and then tell their father that he's dead. So just a lot of drama. They've, he's made a mess of his life and it's rooted in the fact that he failed to acknowledge God. He failed to pray and seek God's counsel as he started down this path. Now, as the scripture says of a truth, all men are sinners and come short of the glory of God. Jacob and his family are perfect examples of that, and it's set before us in Scripture so that we can learn the mistakes that they made and not make the same mistakes. If you make the same mistakes, then you can expect the same outcome. Um, 
even though God is ever with him, there's clearly an estrangement between he and the Lord because he's not acknowledging the Lord, he's not repenting of his sins. There is no real change in Jacob's life until he confesses that he is a sinner and he cries out to the Lord. And he does this finally in Genesis chapter 32, verses 10 and 11. Genesis 32, 10 and 11. He's uh, on his way home, he's almost there, and he's going to have to... He's going to have to make peace with Esau. Esau's fixing to come out and meet him, and I think he's coming out with 400 men. That's verse 6. So in verse 10, he says, I am not worthy of the least of all thy mercies and of all thy truth. He's not worthy of the mercies God has um, granted him, but he is worthy of death as a sinner. And he, it's come to his understanding now. He says, I am not worthy of least of all the mercies and of all the truth which thou hast showed unto thy servant. For with my staff I passed over this Jordan, and now I am become two bands. He's acknowledging the Lord has been with him, kept him safe, granted him mercy, and prospered him. And now he says in verse 11, Deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he will come and smite me and the mother with the children. So he acknowledges that he's worthy of death for the sin that he's committed to Esau in particular. He's concerned that Esau is going to requite his sin upon his head and kill him for it. And he says quite simply that he stands in need of mercy. And he reminds God of his promise that he would make him a great nation. And we should think about this. God doesn't forget his promises to us. The Bible's full of promises. Why do we remind God of his promises? For our own comfort. For our own comfort that we would appreciate that God is faithful and he always fulfills his promises. And if we play them back through our head, then we can think to ourselves, I know things are tough and difficult right now, but the Lord will get me through it. He will get me through it. So after he does this, after he goes through this process where he acknowledges that he's a sinner and confesses his sin, we begin to see a shift in his life and the way he views things. We can appreciate that in Genesis chapter 33, verse 20, that he builds an altar unto the Lord. In verse 33, verse 20, it says, And he erected there an altar and called it El Eloi Israel. And what does that mean? To God, the God of Israel. That's exactly what he is vow spoke of back in Genesis 28. If I get all the way through this and get to my father's house in peace, then the Lord God is the God of Jacob. And that's Israel, as you know, is Jacob. His name was changed to Israel. So he makes that loop and he acknowledges it. And when you make an altar of God, what you are saying is, I understand that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans 6.23. So he appreciates that. And so he engages in the substitutionary sacrificial system. That's what you do in an altar. You're saying, because of my sins, something's got to die. And so it points to Christ dying on the cross for our sins. So after he makes the um, altar, then we see in chapter 35, verse 2, where he puts away the idols. And is it not remarkable that from 29, Genesis 29, all the way to 35, He's got idols in his house. They're, they're committing idolatry, and yet God is still with him. So finally in 35 verse 2, he puts the idols away. And there's a shift in the language throughout this section where he goes to speaking of the God of his fathers, 
to his God. He's not estranged from him anymore, that he has a very personal relationship with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so all of us should appreciate that with respect to our walk, is Jacob is not going to cross the Jordan. You're not going to tr- cross the Jordan, which um, metaphorically means to uh, go to glory, enter into the promised land, until you repent of your sins, you confess your sins, you have a personal relationship with God, and you appreciate the sacrificial offering that Christ made on your behalf, and you uh, put away all of your idols. Then you can cross the Jordan River and enter into your Father's house, your Heavenly Father's house, in peace. Amen.